this book I've got on living abroad has been doing really well during this election cycle, thanks to the angry orange guy. And so um, I don't know if that's going to continue after this is over. <laughs> The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 257. It is estimated that the Mexican drug cartels make $152 million per year from growing and selling avocados. Mmm, avocados. Even though I dislike cold weather, the holidays always brings to mind cold weather and snow for me, having grown up in the northeast of the U.S., where that's typical. And the few times that I've had to spend Christmas in Thailand and Australia where it's been warm, it's it's always felt odd. But no matter where you're spending Christmas, whether that is a cold weather climate, somewhere even colder than Philadelphia, whether that's a warm weather climate like Mexico, which our guest today, Tim, is going to talk all about living in Mexico, you can check out our annual gift guide, because we've got gifts for people in all budget ranges, all climate ranges. It doesn't matter. Go check it out, extrapackofpeanuts.com slash gifts. Those are the 46 best gifts for travelers, no matter what the budget, no matter what their situation, no matter what climate they're in, no matter how they're spending Christmas, the 46 best gifts from around the globe for travelers. And at the top of that list, you always need a good piece of luggage. I highly recommend you check out their Tortuga Outbreaker backpack. You guys know I love my Tortuga backpack. They have outdone themselves with this new Outbreaker backpack. It is awesome. It's rip-proof. It's waterproof. I've been using it for all my travels now to replace my old Tortuga backpack, and I absolutely love it. Cannot speak highly enough about it. So if you want to check that out, you can go to tortugabackpacks.com. Don't forget, you can use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capital letters, because that will get you 10% off anything you buy over at Tortuga Backpacks. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is one of the world's first online travel writers, a man who has penned numerous books and countless articles, and I've been trying to coordinate schedules with to have on the podcast for, I don't know, about two years now, three years now. Uh, Tim Leffel, author of The World's Cheapest Destinations and Travel Writing 2.0, among other things. Tim, thanks for joining me today and welcome. Hey, thanks for sticking with it and having me on. Yeah, and Tim, it's great to chat with you again, and this time get you on the podcast. It's been a long time coming. A fun fact, I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you, is that back before I even knew that I really wanted to travel or that I was ever going to have any location-independent job or anything around travel, I remember seeing the world's cheapest destination blog and thinking... I don't even like I I didn't even love traveling at that point. I think I was in university or or maybe just finished. I just remember seeing it and thinking, wow, 
someone gets paid to do this. Like, that's pretty cool. I don't know I'm going to do it, but that's pretty cool. So you've been at it for quite a long time. Yeah, I started that blog in 2003 and um, it didn't actually make any money at first. I didn't even think about that, that it was a possibility. I just put it out because um, I wanted to promote my book and help journalists you know, be able to find me. And whatever kind of stuff didn't make it in the book, I started putting it on the blog and then eventually AdSense came along and affiliate ads came along and all these ways to monetize your site that all seems second nature now. But when they first came out, it was like, oh, wow, I can pay my bar tab with what I'm making from this blog. <laughs> and then it eventually turned into more. Yeah. And Tim, that is that is funny how you got your start. I think that's how a lot of it happens, right? You just want to pay your way either to travel, whether it's a night in a hostel, whether it's you know the bar tab, whatever it is, kind of without thinking that, hey, this might be where my life is going to lead 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Right. And I still had an office job back then. I was still working in a cubicle and had no idea that this was a route of escape from that. I mean, I'd been a travel writer for a long time, writing for magazines and whatever part time. But, uh, you know, eventually it became clear that this was going to be something that was going to turn into an income source for a lot of people. And so then I started launching some other sites and that were you know, sort of around different subjects or different niches and just kind of ended up with this portfolio over time. And uh, I don't know if any one of them could support me by itself unless I moved to Nepal but or Cambodia maybe, but they all add up to something. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about some of the cheapest destinations, two of which you already threw out there. It just happens, right? In, in normal conversation now, you've been doing it so long. But we're talking today, guys, about cheap destinations, travel writing, um, and, and things like that. But you kind of mentioned it. You were working in, um, in a cubicle job. And I want to talk a little bit about how the transition happened between, uh, you know, okay, I'm doing this part time and this is cool and I'm writing for some publications to then, as you mentioned, it becoming your life. Like you're able to do it full time. And even though that's from multiple, multiple income uh, streams and different sources, was there like a seminal moment where you thought, all right, I'm ready to go? Was there a number that you had to hit in your bank account or how much you're making per month to to actually say, I'm going to leave this regular job or did something else happen? Yeah, I was dreaming of getting to that point and kind of keeping an eye on the, the income and seeing what was going to be reasonable. But I did have a wife and a kid, so I couldn't just make a a crazy leap like I would have if I'd been a single nomad. So I, I think I, I hit the point, it was like 3,500 or 4,000 in a month. And I said, all right, this will work. <laughs> so then I was able to, you know, kick the old job goodbye and um, just go full time. That was about 10 years ago. And it's managed to, you know, keep going. I mean, some months are better than others, of course. Everybody talks about the roller coaster when you're self-employed, but um, it's managed to, uh, you know, manage to support a family and pay the bills and all that. So, yeah, it's been nice. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of did a little more conservatively than some because of the family thing. I made sure I was making enough before I completely cut the ties. But um, part of that, too, I advise people to, you know, not get rid of their day job right away because it takes a lot longer to get established than most people think. You know, they just see these people traveling around the world and making a living. And they're like, oh, I'm going to do that starting tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, it takes a while to build up your audience and build up traffic and get indexed in Google. And you can't really speed that stuff up. 
Yeah, was was the travel something you always did, even when it was you were in, working in the cubicle? Was that something that was always a big part of you, even going back to when you were a kid growing up? Was, was there travel, was this just a part of your life, or was there a moment with that where you kind of, it kicked it off and you thought, all right, well... Like I'm not going back. I'm I'm always going to continue to travel, even if it only means you know when I have vacation for my my regular job or something like that. Yeah, in the long scheme, I kind of look at the cubicle job as a as aberration. It was a break in between because I had a baby, and you know it's really hard to travel when you got a baby. As they get older, you can do whatever you want, but it's tougher then. So, um, but really, when I was young, my parents were both school teachers, so we had the whole summer off, and you know there's good and bad with that. You know, we didn't have loads of money, but we had lots of time in the summer. So we did a lot of U.S. trips and camping trips and things like that. But I did not travel much internationally at all until um, I was well into my first job out of college. And uh, at the time I was living in New York City and my now wife, then my girlfriend said, I'm going to go traveling around the world and I would really like you to come with me. And uh but I'm going anyway, <laughs> whether you come or not. <laughs> and uh, I said, "All right, you know, I got a, I got some, I got a car, I got this condo, you know, I got all these things, which is people's excuses a lot of times. You know, what's holding you home?" But uh, eventually, I divested of my uh, belongings, and we uh, hit the road together, and we ended up traveling around the world for three years. And we were teaching English part of that time in Turkey and Korea, but basically, we're on the road three years out of four, we took a year in between to save up some money again. But then, um, yeah, when, um, the call of motherhood started for my wife or the ticking time clock, whatever you want to call it, uh, we, uh, we settled for a while back in the U S again. And, um, I got, I got a, a real job and went in and did my commute and all that. But eventually I was able to, um, say goodbye to that. And we've been traveling more ever since. And I've been, you know, traveling more solo, uh, as part of my job, but I still, I'm not nomadic. I'm not out there all the time, although we have lived abroad. Yeah. What was, how long were you working in the, uh, in the cubicle job? I think about four years, five years, somewhere in there. Um, and you know, it was good. It allowed me to put some money in my 401k and things like that. You know, there's definitely some advantages to having an office job. And also your social life is kind of better when you're working in an office. So I think, that's a big um, adjustment for a lot of people when they start working for themselves. They're like, oh, man, I'm getting so much more done, but I don't really have as many friends as I used to. <laughs> yeah, or when you want to do something in the middle of the day and you realize that everyone else is actually at work. <laughs> exactly. And here you, you have the freedom to go out to lunch or work from a cafe or whatever. It's great in the beginning, and then you think, I'm just the only one. None of my friends are doing this. And then you try to convince them to do it, right? Yeah. Hopefully you can pull one <laughs> one or two in so that they can join your crew, right? I think it is easier to find a local tribe now than it used to be, you know, with meetup with meetup groups and whatever. But it's still if you're traveling a lot, you know, with the kind of job that you and I have, it's it's hard to stick to any kind of a routine and go to some meetup group on a regular basis. So it's still kind of hard sometimes. <laughs> That's always been my excuse. I've never actually gone to a meetup group in Philly because not even a travel meetup group because I'm always traveling. And then when I'm home, I always say, all right, this is the time I'm doing it. Like I'm home for three months. I'm at least going to go to one of their things. So that's what I'm saying. This is the time now. Yeah. This time, the, the seventh time I'm saying it, I'll actually do it. <laughs> yeah, there's one here in Tampa where I live called uh, 
world and bar explorers or something like that and it's basically uh people that like to travel that meet up in bars and that's all <laughs> that's the common denominator <laughs> yeah well it's probably a good a good group of people to hang out with. they all have good stories that's for sure exactly so with you then how did you break into the travel writing industry like and and what was it about writing was writing a passion of yours growing up or was it an outlet basically to get out some of the stories that you had from traveling. Well, I did well in my English classes in school, and um, I actually worked for RCA Records for seven years out of college, and I did a lot of corporate kind of writing for them, you know, band bios and sales copy and stuff like that. So it was really just kind of a logical extension of that to say, all right, what can I do when I'm traveling around the world? Well, you know, teaching English seems like a pretty good gig, and why don't I you know, try to do some articles along the way because I've got this writing background. And I ended up getting a pretty good amount published as I was traveling. But of course, it was all magazines back then. This was, you know, pre-internet. And so I was constantly having to deal with mailing stuff. And that's a real pain when you're traveling around the world. It's so much easier now. But um, yeah, so I've been a freelance writer for more than 20 years now because I started doing that when we were traveling. And the cool part was I got this gig reviewing hotels for um, a trade publication. And so we'd be, you know, backpacking, staying at these cheapo guest houses. And then we, we had those backpacks that you zip up and turn them into a suitcase. So we'd roll up in our one nice outfit with our zipped up <laughs> backpacks and stay at a nice hotel for a couple of nights and really enjoy it. That is always the funny dichotomy for for us as well, because, you know, obviously our, our travel has changed in the last four or five years that we've been doing it. And we tend to stay at little nicer places now. So we're not like the $2 hostels in Thailand, right? But but still, when we're paying our own way, which is 99% of the time, you know, you're looking for that good value. And so it's always funny to me when I either use hotel points or on the off chance, you know, we get we get sponsored or something like that. I remember rocking up to the uh, Park Hyatt Vendome because we had two free nights because of a Hyatt credit card. We're like, we're going to use me as $1,000 a night or $1,100 a night. I, I don't even know why or how because it wasn't actually that impressive to me. But, you know, we had come from this tiny shoebox Airbnb and here we are like rocking up. I didn't even have anything nice to wear at that point. And people were probably looking at us like, what's going on? Because Roger Federer had been there the night before, was there. So it, it's always funny when you, when you balance that uh, rough traveling or, or independent traveling with then the, you know, the upscale luxury travel. Yeah, and I still have trouble making the switch sometimes because I'm still basically cheap at heart, even though I write about luxury travel sometimes. And so, uh, you know, you look at those restaurant menus, menus, and and you're thinking twenty seven dollars for a club sandwich. We got to go somewhere else. <laughs> I, I'm with you, Heather. Heather eats. At least I have a wife, so it's good that that Heather's the opposite way. I mean, she'll t- she'll luxury travel, take it for all it's worth. She doesn't care. And, you know, you get me who, yeah, even if it's someone's paying for it or something, I can't, it, it hurts me that someone else is actually paying that amount. So, yeah, always going to be cheap at heart, even if our travel changes and stuff like that. I- I'm with you, too. I don't think you ever kick that, right? Yeah, it's hard to, yeah, like if somebody handed us a million dollars, we probably wouldn't waste it all on the, uh the menus at those hotels <laughs> we'd find something no. else to do with it <laughs> like you said i'd be like all right what what place has the cheapest beer and i'd be in Prague <laughs> buying like the whole bar beers because i had a million yeah. dollars but i'd still be happy because they were one dollar beers right? exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> and lo- lots of people you know who, who want to travel or who are traveling 
turn towards travel writing. It's you know a natural progression for a lot of people, but it is a really tough field to get into. From someone who's been doing it for a long time, you've done books and you've done uh, magazines and online and everything. What advice do you have for people who are saying, all right, yeah, I want to get into this. Is there anything that you could tell them to help them either break in or to kind of things they should be wary about or at least be aware of um, when they're trying to get into the travel writing sphere? Yeah, well, two things. First, get the basics down. And I actually just published an article a couple of weeks ago on my um, travel writing site. It's travelwriting2.com. And it was called Five Tricks to Make You a Better Travel Writer. And this is all stuff that you study in basic, you know, creative writing classes or creative nonfiction writing classes or that you get out of a book about writing well. Um, but, you know, I was just trying to give people a quick sense of what they need to know. And even those things, I like, like when people have read it, they've gone, oh, crap, I never even thought about that because they didn't have any formal training. And that's OK. You know, you get better as you practice. And if you read a lot of books, you're going to sort of pick up things by osmosis. But um, there are some basic craft things that you should try to get down before you try to, especially if you try to be a freelancer and pitch articles to an editor. I mean, they're going to they could spot an amateur in the first two sentences, you know, <laughs> so you really need to get it right from the beginning. But then um, on your own blog, I mean, you could be more conversational. You don't have to be, you know, some fantastic award-winning writer, but if, as long as you're conveying the information well, but, you know, watch the typos, watch the grammar mistakes, all that kind of stuff. And then as far as breaking in, um, I mean, of course, I have a book out on that, Travel Writing 2.0. There's a bunch of other ones out there if you don't um, like that one, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough slog and I don't think people realize that. And I've, I tried to make my book even more realistic than most of them, because I think a lot kind of sell the dream, like, you know, go sit on an Island in Tahiti and work as a travel writer. And isn't this a great thing get paid to travel the world, but you know, it's not that easy and it takes a while to get to that point. I mean, sure. The perks are great once you get there and once you have some influence, but it's going to take a year or two or more to get to that point. And I don't think a lot of people are willing to put in the time and the work and the effort that it's really going to require to get there. I mean, if you just want to go make a buck working as a digital nomad, there's probably a lot better fields to go into than, the, yeah. than travel writing. <laughs> a lot more lucrative, a lot more uh, passive uh, when you get to a certain point, for sure, for sure. Now, do you have a preference for either freelancing or, you know, and that, and by freelance, I mean like writing for, for another publication, whether it be a magazine or even online or, you know, writing on your own blog or writing a book, or do you kind of enjoy bouncing in between each thing because it's, it's a different skill set and a different kind of framework and perception that you're coming from? Yeah. And it's also another income stream. I mean, I, I think it's, you make yourself very fragile if you're depending on one thing all the time and even, even one form of advertising or one, you know, one blog or whatever. And so I think it's healthy to, I keep freelancing partly because of that. It's just good to have another income stream, but also as you're starting out, um, you get paid, you know, fairly quickly on something like that. And it's a way to get money into your account right away. Whereas opposed to if you're starting out a blog, it's going to be six months or a year before you're making hardly anything from your blog. That's just the nature of it. it just takes that long to get rolling. So in the end, you will probably make a lot more money from your blog if you build up a decent sized audience. But in the near term, uh, it's a lot better to get paid $250 to write a thousand word article for somebody than it is to write 
you know, 40 of them before you make anything on your blog. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's good to also, it's good training as a writer to get an editor, to look at your work and tell you what you're doing wrong because, you know, your readers aren't going to tell you what you're doing wrong, except maybe they'll complain about your typos, but <laughs> you know, an editor is going to be very brutally honest about where your writing needs improvement and they're going to usually make your article better. And then you say, Oh, okay. Now I see how that works. And in terms of actually writing a book, because I think that's a dream for a lot of people, whether whether it be self-published or, or, you know, probably the main, the big dream and still out there, even though everything's online, everything's digital. I think there's still a huge dream out there for so many people of getting a book published by a traditional publisher, you know, and, and being on a bookshelf in Barnes & Noble. And I get that because... That's cool. I mean, that's still a cool thing. It's always probably going to be cool until books cease to exist, maybe five years from now. Um, it'll always be a neat thing. Have you, like, like when you've sat down to write your book, has it been a struggle? Is it something that you find to be way different than writing on your blog or writing these freelance articles? And is it something that you enjoy and even would recommend for someone who says, I want to write a book, or would you say like, uh, pump the brakes, write freelance, write blog, but maybe take a backseat with a book? Well, I think it depends on what your level of expertise is in a certain subject and whether you've done the homework to find out if people really want to buy this book that you're going to write. Because I think people a lot of times will make a mistake of writing this you know book of stories from their travels because their aunt told them you should really write a book and they do and uh, they sell five copies to their aunt and four of her friends and that's the end of it so i mean first of all is there a market for it do people want this and just i mean pointer just something to keep in mind nonfiction books about a certain subject are a lot easier to sell. They're a lot easier to market. There's a lot more demand for it. If you're trying to write a narrative travel book, um, you know, there's not a real big market for that. I mean, some people do really well, of course. I mean, you see some bestsellers out there sometimes, but I mean, it's a much tougher nut to crack. So if you can stick with something that answers questions and helps people out and eases their pain, then you've got a lot better opportunity to, to market it and actually make some money off of it. And then in terms of the, you know, traditional versus self-published. I mean, I think for the average customer, it doesn't matter. They don't really care where it came from or, and, you know, Amazon, something like 65 or 70% of the market now, it's insane. But, you know, there are advantages to having a traditionally published book out there in terms of your visibility. And if you're trying to get jobs as a speaker or you're a consultant or something like that, it's sort of like a a really nice business card. And so there are some uh, definite advantages to that. But I've had two traditionally published books and never made anything past the advance. Whereas the ones I've put out myself, I've made, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So there is, if your goal is to make money, you're much better off self-publishing because the royalty rates are massively higher. Yeah. And I, I personally, I love the travel narrative books. I, I'm with you in that it's so hard because a everyone wants to do it because it's your own story so in your mind it's probably more important than in someone else's mind sorry everyone out there but uh same with me in my travels right so i just started a podcast so you had to listen to it um but it, it when it's done well it's really really great but it's very hard and and i think that's one of the reasons why i'm always looking for more travel narrative books that are good because i'll pick up anyone that i see and you know 
the every one out of five, I I I actually finish because it's it's really well written. It's funny. It's you know it tells a story. Whereas with the nonfiction, as you mentioned, if I want to know how to do travel writing and be a travel writer, okay, well if I pick up travel writing 2.0, I might not sit back and say, oh, I can't wait to laugh at this book and be wowed, but I'll read it because it's something that I want to do. And so there's as you mentioned, there's just a lot more market there for it. And I think it's, I'm not going to say it's easier to do, but in my mind, at least the way I work, it's its easier to structure. Like I couldn't even imagine trying to put together a novel about my tales or, or you know, a, a true story or narrative about my tales. Whereas if someone asked me, all right, how do you start a podcast? I could go boom, 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 and, and kind of write a book about it if I want it. Right. Uh, I didn't really answer your question about whether everybody should do that or whether some people should. Besides, is there a market for it? Just understand that this is like more project management than it is, uh, you know, firing off a blog post or something. It's going to take months or a year to complete a book. And it's something that you have to really stick with and really persevere, you know, month after month and find time for. So um, if you're somebody that gets distracted easily and has trouble um, seeing projects through and taking them to the end, then that might not be the best path to follow because you'll be frustrated five years later that you still haven't gotten it done. Yeah, it definitely is. It's a longer haul, way less instant gratification than writing up a blog post, publish, boom, it's out. You get a comment right away and you say like, yeah, someone read this, right? Like that book is going to take forever. How long, can you remember how long did some of your books take from like the very beginning of when you sat down to write it through when it actually either got published, whether it was self-published or by another or, you know, or traditionally published? So I'm going to start with the one I remember most, which is the last one I wrote, A Better Life for Half the Price. It's about moving abroad. And I think I spent close to a year on that. And that was partly because I was interviewing a lot of people. I didn't want it to just be me, you know, talking about what it's like to live in all these different countries. I wanted to talk to people who actually live there and get their take. Because I've found over the years that, like, I'll get criticism constantly on the blog and, you know, get these comments from trolls that'll tell me I don't know what I'm talking about and the prices are nothing like what I've said and all this stuff. And it's like, well, when's the last time you were there? And I interviewed these three people who live there. So shut up, you know? <laughs> so that is sort of like, uh, a way for me to be sure to deflect that criticism, be sure that I've got solid info. So I did a lot of interviews for that. And uh, that took a lot of time. And then just, yeah, you know, you go through the first draft and the second draft, and you get somebody to look at it and clean up your mistakes. And so, yeah, I think a year is probably a good amount of time to set aside. Although I think now when I put out the world's cheapest destinations, I'm just updating, you know, doing a new edition. I updated every three or four years. That's a lot easier because I just have to go in and see what's changed. And maybe I'll take out a country and add a new one, something like that. But um, so, yeah, subsequent editions are easier once you do the first one. <laughs> for, for sure. Speaking of world's uh, cheapest destinations, you know, you're, you're the king of cheap destinations and you're always trying to persuade or convince or really just, I guess, educate people on the fact that they can have a better life for half the price, which is the title of the newest book. What are some of the hot spots that you've personally found or, or even that you enjoy the most where you say, all right, you can have a better life for half the price. And, and we'll use the US as a baseline, right? Of, of you know, trying to get half the price of that or around that. What, what are the places that you recommend or that you have enjoyed? 
Well, I have a house in Mexico and I've lived there for three years. So I guess I will um, say that's the top of my list. I mean, it's partly because it's so close and so easy. And these days the, the pace is really weak. And so it's, I mean, I'd say it's, it's one of the best deals in this hemisphere right now, just because the quality of what you get is so good. It's for uh, a better life for a third the price now. <laughs> yeah, right? it's really. Uh, I'm, I went there this summer for a couple of weeks just to get back, and God, it was cheap. And so I, I was really happy. Uh, it's not so good if you're Mexican, but if you're coming in with dollars, it's a great time to go. But um, there are a lot of countries that Americans go to because it's easy. You know, if you can stay in Latin America, you don't have jet lag. It's pretty easy to, you know, keep in touch with everybody at home without being on odd hours and you can get back in a plane pretty easily. So, you know, uh, these days I'd say Nicaragua and Colombia, uh, Argentina um, are all pretty popular for expats. And then they're for retirees, a lot of people end up in Panama or Ecuador because they have pretty good incentive programs if you're old enough. Get lots, you get easy residency and lots of perks. Uh, as far as, you know, the other side of the world, a lot of people go to Asia because they like the lifestyle and the food and prices are really cheap. So there's a whole cluster there, but the whole problem with some of them is the visa situation is really difficult if you're not retire, retiree age. And I think Chiang Mai is probably the most popular you know, digital nomad spot in the world, but you've got to be a nomad. Like it's really hard to live there long term. Uh, you end up having to do visa runs every month or two, and and after a while, they start telling you that this will be the last one. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, Cambodia is a lot easier. You can just waltz in and buy a business visa, and you're good for a year. So um, that is probably where I would go if I were going to travel and live in Asia for a while. But um, Vietnam's fairly easy. Um, India has got has gotten really easy. Actually, you can now get a ten year multi entry visa, and you used to have to leave after six months and stay away for two, and then you could come back for six months again. But now they've gotten rid of that, so basically you can just do a border run to Nepal or you know take a vacation in Sri Lanka, and then you can come back and live for another six months again without leaving. And you know parts of India are tough, and it's a tough place to travel. But there's some really idyllic places like up in the mountains up north, or if you go to Goa or Kerala or somewhere like that, um, it's a pretty chilled out life. And so that's a popular uh, place for, you know, young people to settle down for a while. And uh, it's pretty easy visa wise. Yeah, I, I haven't made it to Goa or Kerala. Unfortunately, I did the hard part of India, like the place that I probably would never need to go back, Mumbai. Um, not somewhere I'd recommend if someone's looking for chilled out. Uh, it's certainly cheap, but still twice as expensive as anywhere else in India. Yeah, and, that's um, true. Yeah, so so I, I'm with you. I, I'll have to give that a shot because India was one of those countries where I was like, you know, everyone raves about going south, Goa, Kerala, or up or, you know, conversely, up in the mountains. Um and I just, I, when I was in Rajasthan, I liked it. I wouldn't ever want to live in that region, the Northwest region. It's too hot and deserty. But uh, cities, uh, I could do if I'm never in a real big Indian city again. I think I'd be okay. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, and then as far as cheap travel, the the next hotspot where I need really need to get to next year before I update this book is the Balkans area. Because that's really, uh, I mean, now they're getting to the point where there's a decent tourism infrastructure it's still not where it needs to be but it's it's good enough that you can travel around there so you know macedonia albania um serbia there's a lot of places in there that are um that are as cheap as eastern europe basically but a whole different kind of culture different food so that's my next research trip (laughs) 
I love that that's, that that's a research trip for you. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> Got to go on a research trip to the Balkans. I'll see you in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, I'll maybe I'll hop on that research trip with you because I've only ever done, you know, Bosnia and Herzegovina and Sarajevo and, and really just Sarajevo in there and loved it. And, you know, pretty cool city. Uh, kind of growing as a digital nomad place. I mean, not near on the scale of the place that we've been talking about, but you know, there's a little bit there. And then, of course, Croatia, which isn't near as cheap as its Balkan brethren, because uh, yeah, it has an awesome beach, awesome beaches. But yeah, still I think cool Montenegro is probably a much better deal ne- next door, right? So um, yeah, that's definitely on the list too. And I went to this adventure travel summit uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, they move it to a different place each year, but all these adventure tour companies come and I met all these guys from the Balkans. So I'm probably going to do some hiking or rafting and stuff like that there. Yeah. And it, it, what's neat about it is, and you've been doing it longer. So, so you have seen, cause you actually had a book and then you have to go in and update it and see it is that it, it there's never going to be a lack of places that you can go that are going to be cheap. It might change and some things might get more expensive and some areas never will. You know, some areas will just always probably be cheap, but it is neat to see how things constantly are changing. And, and especially like you said, and then they become a new hotspot. I mean, no one would have went to Columbia uh, that I know of 10, 12 years ago, right? It just wasn't happening. And now it's like Medellin, like that is the, here's the digital nomad hotspot. So it's cool that, that things pop up over time. Yeah, it's amazing. I've been watching Narcos on Netflix. It's amazing how <laughs> fast a place can change. I mean, that was only two decades really ago. And wow, what a transformation. And, you know, that's what it's been like in the Balkans too. I mean, it was a war zone literally. And now it's, uh, you know, a great cheap spot to go. And so, yeah, there's always going to be shifts. And some places actually have come in and out of the book a couple times. I think Argentina has, because it sort of depends on what their fiscal policy is like, who's in office. Uh, you know, it seems to be there on the right path now. So maybe it's going to get more expensive <laughs> because it's finally uh, better managed. But I don't know. We'll see what happens there. They, they seem to lurch from crisis to crisis. So it'll, it'll probably uh, bounce around again a few times. Yeah. Is there anywhere else that you've seen other than Argentina that has been that that fluctuates kind of that wildly between, all right, this is like a premier cheap place to go because it's it's a great country in its own right. But sometimes it's as cheap as you can get almost. And other times you're like, well, I mean, you can afford it, but you it wouldn't be considered cheap. But is there anywhere else that you've seen that happen with? Well, sometimes places just get more and more and more popular and more, you know, tourists with money start coming in. And um, I think Thailand is literally getting 15 or 20 times the visitors it did when I first started going there. And I think Cambodia is too, but Cambodia is still really cheap if you get away from, you know, just just, uh, straight up tourist zones. But but I still feel like Thailand's a great deal. It's a great value, you know? So it all depends on what your point of comparison is. And usually when people are complaining about how expensive it is, they, they went there like I did for the first time 20 years ago. They slept on the beach in some hut for a dollar. And no, you can't get that anymore. But it's still a great value. You still get a $10 massage. But uh, the prices there t- tend to fluctuate by at least 10% depending on the exchange rate. And that seems to go up and down every year or two. So that can make a big difference. Um, There are places like Jordan that I'm not sure are going to stay on the list or not, but um, I don't know. I'm going to have to see where things go. And, and, you know, Egypt was like a huge backpacker hotspot 
you know, for such a long time. And now it's kind of fallen off the radar of a lot of people because they're worried about, you know, safety and whatever. And um, not that there haven't been safety issues in the past, but I think it's just been more unsettled and been in the news more. But yeah, I mean, I, I think eventually places sort of like creep up in costs. and um, But then the dollar can get strong again and it changes everything. I mean, Colombia is a pretty good deal right now, but it wasn't three years ago. So it just depends. Um, and I'm sure this strong dollar is not going to last and it'll be back in the toilet at some point and then that'll change it for us. <laughs> yeah. Travel while you can and, um, or at least while you can and be happy about it. Because for example, uh, not a place that'll probably show up in the book or, or you could tell me maybe it's been in before, but South Africa, a yeah, place it's a better deal now. Is yeah, now you go and with the rand being whatever, when I was there, fifteen rand to a dollar, typically it's eight. I mean, you're liter it's literally half as expensive as it was a couple years ago. And so yeah, is it as cheap as Southeast Asia? No, but is it is it getting there? Like, yeah, it's it's pretty cheap. I mean, we went out, three course meal, great restaurant, one of the best restaurants in the middle of Cape Town. We paid thirteen bucks a person after tipping people out. And so you're like I didn't expect to get this in South Africa because, you know, three, four years ago, it would have been 30 bucks a person. You're sitting there thinking, okay, this is comparable to what I'd pay in the States or maybe a little cheaper. So it is crazy what the uh, currency fluctuations can do. Yeah. And I, I write about this a lot on the blog, but I would encourage people to look at um, historic exchange rates. There's a, a site, I could look it up here in a sec, but there's a site that um, gives you the rate for any period you want to specify. So you can say, give it to me for the last two years or last five years or last 10 years. So then you can see, you know, how things are looking right now compared to the past. And, um, you know, some countries never change because they're pegged to the dollar and some of them actually even use the dollar. Like, Panama and Ecuador, but a lot of the others, um, there'll be a massive change from year to year, sometimes like 30% and 50%, like you said, or 100, um, which obviously will drastically change, drastically change what you pay on the ground anywhere, everything from taxis to meals to, you know, getting a massage or whatever. So, um, you know, kind of look at where we've been and where we are and that'll, um, make a big difference that site's called fxtop.com fxtop yeah. there's a lot of exchange rate sites out there but that one is the best i've seen for giving you um, a history yeah so if you're I, I am the same way as you tim I'm a, I'm a huge nerd like i love looking at the graphs and for me part of the like one of the best parts of traveling is when i can get a good deal and so if, i mean the ultimate deal is when you're traveling to a country and the dollar just happens to be stronger when you're going there because then you're not doing anything. You're just traveling at the right time. And so uh, Heather will always pick on me for that because I just got my little app on the phone and I'm like, oh man, this country's getting, you know, it's dropped in the last two months. We got to go here. So uh, if you're someone as, as nerdy as me, maybe you want to actually plan your travels around that. Um, if not, at least be aware of it because it does. It makes a huge difference, especially if you're on a budget and you're someone who who is very flexible with where you want to go. And, and might want to travel more or is traveling long term, of course, and you're trying to stretch your dollar as far as possible. That's it's a kind of a an idea, the, the currency fluctuations that flies a little under the radar, I think. But because people just think, oh, it's always similar, but it can it's not always the case. 
Yeah, and I think people have this habit of picking the destination first and then figuring out what they're going to be able to spend. And instead of saying, all right, I got three grand to spend, where am I going to go? <laughs> because then that you know, there's a lot more possibilities out there and you might get a lot more for your money. You could use that in conjunction with something like Google Flights where you can look at a map of the world basically from your own airport and see what the flights are, are running all over the world. And sometimes you'll see crazy cheap deals on there to somewhere that you might not have considered, you know, but if you can go to, let's say Cartagena in Colombia for $200 round trip and you know, the dollar's really strong there. Well then, you know, that might yeah. be a choice. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's time to shelve Paris yeah. and you're three days for $3,000 in Paris and go live in Cartagena for three months, right? Yeah. I mean, especially if you're going to do a, a one-week trip or less, you know, I mean, you can go to a place like that. It's not going to take you that long to get there. Um, and, you know, you'll have a great time and spend a lot less money than you would have otherwise. Or just upgrade your experience, stay at a better hotel, eat better. Um, the same thing with mileage, you know, instead of trying for three months to use those miles to go to Hawaii during peak season when everybody's trying to go, then figure out where you really can go with those miles and, you know, try out a different place. Yeah. And one of the things that you've done I won't say differently than other travel writers, but but certainly than some of the travel writers and some of the younger travel writers without families or, or just couples is actually lived abroad for an extended period of time in one place. That be that being Mexico and the place you have down there. For people with families who who are listening or who are like maybe they don't just want to travel. They're like, hey, I'm ready to maybe uproot a little bit or or try this out for a couple months or a year. Are there any places that you specifically recommend that that you would say, all right, this is less for traveling and more for living abroad and having a better life for half the price while you're actually bunked down here? Yeah, well, I think if you have a family, you got to kind of got to look at the school situation first. And um, I mean, it depends on how old they are. If they're not in school yet, then you don't have to care. And I do think it matters more and more the older they get. So, I mean, if you're going to if you're trying to plan when to go live abroad, it's best to do it when they're young than to wait till they're in high school, because that's actually why I'm back in the States now is because my daughter's a junior in high school. And, you know, your education is going to matter more and more as you get closer to graduation and and it just gets tougher, you know, every, all the subjects get harder and they get more demanding. So, um, but when we moved abroad, we really wanted our daughter to get fluent in Spanish. So we sent her to a local school. I mean, it was a private school, but it was all in Spanish. So she got, you know, really fluent in Spanish and I, whether she believes me or not, that's going to help her out in life, no matter what she decides to do. Uh, so, you know, Look at that, but also look at how far away you're willing to be. Um, some people are willing to, you know, pack up and move across the world to Indonesia. But for a lot of families, that's a little scary. They maybe want to be in Europe or Latin America so they can get back home in six or eight hours rather than, you know, 16 hours or 18 hours. And um, like I said, with the phone calls, if you're on the opposite end of the um, of the globe. It just makes it a lot harder to do business, makes it a lot harder to keep in touch with family and friends and things like that. So it can be a little more jolting, a little more lonely. Um, but I mean, these days, I think it doesn't matter as much as people think it matters in terms of what it's going to be like. It's not going to be a massive hardship when you live where you live. We've got all these tools now for communication. We've got all these tools where you can work 
remotely. Um, there's stuff for kids to do everywhere. I mean, kids live everywhere. It's not like you're going to go to some city and it's only going to be adults. You know, there's going to be plenty of stuff to entertain the kids. You can get books on the Kindle now. You can, you know, it's a whole lot easier than it was in the pre-internet days to go put your stake down somewhere else and just go try it out for a bit. Go do it for a month or two in the summer and see how it goes. And that'll give you a good sense of whether you can do it for longer. Yeah, that, that's great advice with the trying it out and just seeing how it works for everyone in the family, for for you, for your spouse, for, for any kids you have, anyone else who might be coming. I mean, because everyone's going to react to it differently, right? And the first reaction might not be what ends up being the feeling as well. Like maybe you're, it's your idea to go abroad and you have to convince someone else or, you know, and then you get there and maybe you're thinking, I don't know. And then the other person is like, this is great. So nothing is going to beat the actual experience of doing it, seeing if you like it. And uh, I would also caution people, same as with, with traveling with people who say, all right, I'm just going to take a, you know, I'm going to leave my job right now and take a round the world trip and go away for a year. I mean, a lot of people do it and that's fine, but some people aren't ready for it. And I say, okay, well, don't leave your job. See if you can take like a month off and go. And if you come back and you think this is amazing, all right, then come back and say, thanks for giving me the month off. Uh, Can you give me 12 off or whatever (laughs) it is, you know? So there's... Yeah, or take two weeks off and work remotely for two weeks and see how that goes. Because, like, I just met this guy in in uh, Belize who's managing this hotel with his wife. But when he first moved down there, he worked for a, a web development company building websites. And he asked his boss if he could do the same thing living in Belize. And he's, he was actually living off the grid and using satellite uh, internet. But his boss said, well, you know, I'm a little skeptical, but if you can do it, you know, if you can do the same job and I don't really notice that you're gone, then fine. And he ended up working that way for seven years. So, you know, his boss was perfectly happy with the work he was doing. So, uh, you know, obviously, if you work for a total jerk, uh, that might not work out. But, you know, most bosses really care about results more than anything. So if you can keep doing what you're doing in a remote manner, um, you know, that's not going to work if you're a policeman or a firefighter or something. But if you have the kind of job that can go with you, which is more and more of them these days, then just try it out and see how it goes. Yep. As long as you're giving people the results and the production that they want, uh, usually people are amenable to it. Uh, uh, you know, maybe not at first, but then you convince them, and typically people will be jealous. And maybe you'll convert, you know, whoever else you're working for to then all everyone become remote. You never know. I mean, in in 15 years, this discussion might be mute because who, who cares? Like everyone's on the internet, and uh, and we see that as you mentioned more and more and more. So it is something that's that's definitely happening. And if you're making U.S. dollars or or you know you're making euros or British pounds or Australian dollars, you know any of these currencies that are usually do pretty well against other world currencies. That's where that whole better life for half the price comes in because now all of a sudden. You can live anywhere. And when you can live anywhere and you're living in Thailand for $1,000 a month, the same as you would live in the States for $5,000 a month, that's $4,000 a month you have extra, right? And that's that's a pretty cool thing. Exactly. I felt twice as rich for sure living in Mexico. And one byproduct of that that people don't really think about is you end up shedding some possessions and shedding some bills that you're just used to paying every month that you think are a given, but then they're not a given when you move somewhere else and you're like, holy crap, I got all this extra money because you're not paying health insurance. Or if you are, it's just some traveler plan, you know, to take care of some catastrophe because it's so cheap for healthcare, you're paying out of pocket and you don't have 
car insurance if you're if you don't need a car, which you don't in a lot of places because they're more pedestrian friendly and have better public transportation. And you know, all this stuff just starts adding up, and it's very easy for you to get to spending half of what you did before, even if you're having twice as much fun and going out a lot more. It it, it really is. And then I, when I tell people that and they think, no, it's hyperbole because you're always saying, you know, you're always speaking these glowing terms. And then people go and do it. And they're like, nope, Thailand, you're right. Really is that cheap. I can rent a motorbike for three bucks a day, uh, you know, and and go eat for a dollar or two a meal. And, um, and it's an amazing experience. And you know, I, I, it's not like I'm saying I hate living in the States. I, you know, it's great for what it is. And, and I love it here. I love being a citizen. But there's a lot of ways to stretch your dollar and have these amazing experiences and, and not have to be rich to do it. And that's why I'm so glad that, that you wrote the book way back when and continue to update it and write more books because you're really showing that it's possible. Um, the last question I want to ask you before, before I let you get out of here is about a travel mishap because you just talked about catastrophes. Uh, you've been you've done a lot of traveling. You've been traveling with a family. You've traveled uh, solo, all that kind of stuff. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind as like the one of the bigger travel mishaps that you've had in your life where eh, it might not have been funny when it was happening, but looking back, you're like, well, at least I got a good story out of it. <laughs> Yeah, I've had a few a few funny ones, and they're mostly in India, as we were talking about, because it's just, uh, I mean, just so many bad things seem to happen there because there's so many scams going on, and there's so many people trying to cheat you out of your money. But um, the funniest was when, when we were in Rajasthan, uh, you have to take your shoes off to go to a temple, you know, and there's this little temple at the very top of the fort when you walk all the way to the top. So I took my nice Timberland hiking boots off and went into this temple and looked around. I came back out, and they were gone. And so I'm barefoot. I got no shoes. I'm at the top of this fort. And I was so angry because, you know, A, they were nice shoes that I was planning on still traveling with. But also, I did not want to walk back to my hotel through crappy India, literally, in my bare feet. And so I went running down the ramparts of this fort, like looking at what everybody was wearing all the way down. And when I got near the bottom to the gate, I saw this punk 16 year old kid walking along with my timberlands on and so uh, i've always had this fantasy of like beating somebody up that's stolen something from me because you never usually see who does it who did it you know if somebody breaks into your car or your apartment or something so i like threw this kid against the wall but he was just like this really scrawny indian teenager you know and he was totally freaked out and i was yelling at him in a language he probably didn't understand and pointing to pointing to the shoes and this policeman came over and uh and uh, started asking the kid questions. And every time the kid answered, he like flacked him with this bamboo pole. Like he obviously didn't like the answers. <laughs> like, so I got my shoes back. I walked away and I don't know what happened after that. But um, it was it was very funny later in the retelling, but uh, not so funny at the time when I thought I had lost my one my one of my two good pairs of shoes <laughs> yeah well that that indian kid now whenever he's interviewed on a podcast gets to tell the story of the of the uh <laughs> the big white guy who was beating him up and all he was doing was going to take your shoes to get like cleaned or something yeah, like that sure. <laughs> yeah we were joking what was he saying oh i thought they were mine <laughs> yeah they're like eight sizes too big for yeah. him and, yeah <laughs> that's but, awesome tim well but, what uh, else I didn't really have a lot of bad experiences. Like I've been lucky over the years, no huge motorcycle accidents or anything like that. Yeah, so far so good, and that's why you can continue to keep keep traveling. What else do you have in in the pipeline coming up? Is there is there anything people should be looking out for? 
Well, um, I'm going to be heading over to Manila, the Philippines, um, and then doing a little trip around there afterwards because I'm speaking at this Travel Bloggers Exchange Conference, the Asia version. Uh, and it's funny, uh, last time I was there was probably 20 years ago, and I had no great desire to go back, I will say. So I'm going to give it a second chance and see how it goes. But um, as far as projects go, um, no, I'm just uh, going to be updating um the world's cheapest destinations next year. And uh, I actually, um, this book I've got on living abroad has been doing really well during this election cycle, thanks to the angry orange guy. And so um, I don't know if that's going to continue after this is over. <laughs> you're like, you're like one of the only people rooting um, for Donald Trump, not rooting from the wind, but also kind of like, well, there is a side benefit that everyone's going to be wanting to read my books. Yeah, I'm rooting for it to be close for another month and then for him to lose because I, I would rather uh, see that happen than to sell more books. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Tim, glad the books are doing well, um, despite the reason for them doing well. And uh, and glad you're giving Philippines another chance. I've never been there. I It's one of those countries that I, I hear people... I mean, there's either people raving about it or people saying like, yep, I went once and uh, don't really need to go back. So we'll have to we'll have to get you back on or, and talk about um, what your feelings are 20 years later and, yeah. uh, and see, see if that's still the same feeling. The, the funny thing is, though, the people that live there are very patriotic and, you know, huge fans of their country. So there's this thing in the blogging world called the Filipino bump that if you write about the Philippines, they're all going to share it and rave about your story. And so maybe I'll get a little action from that. Yeah, well, and, and likewise, I know some... Filipino bloggers and you just see them taking off in terms of the numbers and the pages. Yeah, they're huge. And it's because the Filipinos love other Filipinos and love when you talk about their country. So there you go. You get a little bump from Donald <laughs> Trump, a little bump from the Filipinos. Hey, that, that's all you have to do. Just go around picking little pockets that will continue to give you bumps and then you can be a, anyone can be a travel writer, right? I'll take whatever I can get. <laughs> Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for being a part of our Paradise Pack project, which some of you listening know about. You know, we run that every year. You've been a part for the last couple of years. We love having you in. Of course, you know, thanks for inspiring a, a younger generation that there, you know, there is another world out there. Even though I didn't know what I was getting into when I first saw your site, who knows how long ago? I wasn't even a traveler. I had no idea I was going to have my own business. Um, but it obviously spurred something in me way back way back then, um, even if we both didn't know it at that point. So thanks so much for that. Remind people how they can come find you, how they can come connect with you. You do a lot of stuff. What's the best way or couple of ways they can find all the kind of stuff that you were talking about today? Well, the cheapest destinations blog is the one we've been talking about. That's all. That's what it's called, all one word, and um, that's what the best place to follow me on Facebook as well. Otherwise, I'm Tim Leffel. Uh, you can go to timleffel.com. That links out to all my books and uh, social media handles and all that good stuff. And did you just get that redesigned, or it looks nice? Yeah, about a year ago. Um, Paid somebody on Fiverr.com to knock it out, and uh, that was the best $60 I've ever spent. It's amazing how much uh, less now you could spend on web development if you find somebody good. Awesome. Well, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to ask you for a recommendation on that. And guys, we will be linking everything up in the show notes, all the stuff that we talked about here that Tim just mentioned and that we talked about throughout the show. You can get that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods. You can find all the shows there. You can also find all the show notes 
Um, don't forget, too, if you are looking for a good backpack, you're going to be traveling around, uh, you want to carry on one only, go to TortugaBackpacks.com. And if you get something there, you can use your promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capital letters. That'll get you 10% off your entire order. Tim, thanks once again. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad this time we got to talk and actually record it for the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. Thank you for the continued support. As always, keeps us number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you how-